This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'm Allison Nathan, Senior Strategist in Goldman Sachs Research and creator and editor of the firm's Top of Mind Report. In this episode, we're focusing on the topic on everyone's mind right now, inflation. U.S. inflation has risen to 30-plus year highs, and while much of the recent price rises likely owe to pandemic-related factors that seem set to unwind, the higher inflation goes and the longer it lasts, the greater the concern that so-called transitory inflation could become more persistent, with potentially large implications for the economy, the Fed, and markets. So where inflation goes from here is top of mind. We first speak with Mohamed El-Aryan, president of Queens College, Cambridge University, and chief economic advisor at Allianz, who's concerned that inflationary pressures are changing behaviors on the ground in ways that could prove more persistent than many observers, including the Fed, expect. This is important because the key question when it comes to inflation concerns seems to be whether price changes today start to shift people's expectations of future price changes. And if that happens, we could be in for an inflationary spiral, which LRAN warns may not be well captured by market-based measures of inflation expectations. Are you worried that the Fed is too optimistic about the inflation outlook? Yes, I worry. While the Fed has taken a step away from its narrative of transitory inflation, and it had no choice because the numbers, the trends are very clear, it's still holding on to this new phenomenon of, and pick your phrase, either extended transitory, persistently transitory, or rolling transitory. Now, as an economist, I have issues with that characterization because the whole point of transitory inflation is that it doesn't change behaviors on the ground. And what we are seeing, whether it's in wage-setting behavior or in price-setting behavior, behaviors are changing, which for me implies that in the true sense, inflation is not transitory, that the economy is adjusting to a price shock, and that we have to ask seriously what comes after that adjustment. So my concern is that we may have inflationary expectations slowly getting de-anchored. That's my concern. The underlying causes of inflation, it's deficient aggregate supply given where demand is. That's how I would put it. Why do we have deficient aggregate supply? Part of it is transitory, but part of it has to do with structural changes that are going to be with us for a while. So supply chain disruptions, it's not just about the ports in Vietnam and in China being shut down by COVID. It is also because company after company is now putting resilience ahead of efficiency and looking to rewire their supply chains. So there is a structural change going on. In the labor market, we've seen it's not just an issue of unemployment benefits. Labor force participation is stuck at 61.6%. It is also that people's propensity to work has changed. So there is a longer-term structural and secular element to the inflation. It's not to deny there are short-term issues. There are short-term issues. But you also have to be much more open to the fact that there are longer-term issues. So in a balance of risk framework, the balance of risk is both ways. Type 1 error is that you overreact to a transitory inflation, and that is what the central banks and the Fed in particular is focused on. But there's also a type 2 error, that you don't do enough in response to secular inflation trends. And if that happens, you de-anchor inflation expectations. So far, they've remained pretty well anchored. So what do you think would be the catalyst for de-anchoring them? Survey inflation expectations are not well anchored. 
you're above 4%, both for the short term and long term. Market measures are better anchored, but don't forget that you have a non-commercial buyer. Fixed income markets have been and remain highly distorted by incredible injections of liquidity. You've got to respect the fact that you are in a marketplace with someone who will buy regardless of what the valuation is. And you've got to respect that. Otherwise, you get steamrolled. So I always say be careful of the unusual measures we have in the marketplace because you don't know how much you need to adjust for the amount of distortions that have been introduced. Although the Fed has recently begun to taper its asset purchases, Elarian is concerned that it's not acting quickly enough to deal with inflationary pressures, potentially setting the stage for an historic policy mistake. Look, I view this as very simply between the choice of easing off the accelerator and slamming on the brakes. That is the choice. And unfortunately, there is an increasing probability that by not easing off the accelerator early enough, you're going to have to slam on the brakes. Let's just remember what the initial conditions are. The Fed is still buying $120 billion of securities every month. That's going to continue. It's going to continue buying. It's going to be reducing it just by $15 billion a month. That means the balance sheet is going to increase. It is still buying within that $120 billion, $40 billion of mortgages. I don't know a single person that says the housing market has a problem. I know a lot of people who tell me the housing market is so hot that a growing number of Americans are being priced out of the housing market. It is not clear to me why it is that we need emergency levels of asset purchases, emergency level of interest rates at a time when the emergency has passed. Now, when you run an emergency monetary policy, when you don't have an emergency, you start worrying about the unintended consequences and the collateral damage. There's underlying damage happening my worry is that we may end up, and I'm not saying this is the baseline, I'm saying this is the risk scenario with multiple sources of tightening at the same time. Fiscal, household savings. We could also have a market tightening of financial conditions, and we could also have business investment coming down at the same time. So if we're not careful, the risk scenario is that the policy mistake results in so many sources of tightening that we end up in recession. Jan Hatzius, Goldman Sachs' head of global investment research and chief economist, is somewhat less concerned about the inflation outlook. Although inflation surprises have led our economists to substantially raise their inflation forecasts over the past several months, he maintains that inflationary pressures are set to gradually subside later next year as durable goods prices reverse some of their previous run-up and commodity prices stabilize, even as wage and rent pressures are likely to persist. I have confidence that inflation is going to come down next year. And that is basically because there's such an enormous contribution from components where it's just very difficult to believe that they're going to keep going up at anywhere near that rate in like durable goods, autos, sporting equipment, furniture, things like that. I mean, we can debate how long it's going to take for them to normalize. But I would be pretty astonished if they kept rising at anywhere near this rate. So that's already taking away a large amount of inflation. I mean, they're contributing 1.3 percentage points to core PCE inflation and something like two percentage points to core CPI inflation. So I think that's going to come down a lot. I think the direct commodity contribution to headline inflation is going to come down a lot. 
And that's because even if commodity prices stay at these very high levels, then the contribution to inflation is going to come down significantly from that as well. I'm much less sure whether we're going to come down to, say, 2% core PCE inflation or 2.5% core PCE inflation or something in that sort of range. That's hard to know. I'd be really surprised if it was still a three-handle, but two-handle, maybe high ones, I think that's all within the range. And that's going to depend on some of the things that are just harder to be sure about, namely what happens to wages what happens to rents. Clearly, there's acceleration there. We don't really know how pervasive that acceleration is going to be. And that's going to determine where in that range you end up falling. How concerned should we be about that risk of more persistent upside wage pressures? We are somewhat more concerned than we were a few months ago, just because the data have pointed in that direction. I mean, our wage tracker which tries to adjust for changes in the composition of the workforce, which that's a pretty important adjustment in the wake of the pandemic. I mean, that's running at 4% year on year. But if you look at some of the sequential increases in wages recently, they've been running in the sort of 5 to 6% range. 4% is okay. That's quite consistent with 2% inflation or something in the neighborhood of 2% inflation. 5 to 6% probably wouldn't be consistent with that. So if we saw those kinds of numbers going through 2022, I think that would be a reason for concern. There are some areas where I would expect some relief. I mean, the end of the extended unemployment benefits, I think, is going to reduce wage pressure at the bottom end of the pay scale. Admittedly, the evidence so far since Labor Day, when the benefits lapse, is somewhat murky, but I think it's very unlikely that we're going to continue to see double-digit increases in wages at the bottom end of the pay scale. I think there is still slack in the labor market. I agree that labor force participation is probably not going to come back to the pre-pandemic levels. I mean, maybe not ever, because there's also a structural downward trend from population aging But even accounting for that structural downward trend, I would expect that some of the weakness, in particular from early retirements, is going to be lasting. So I think we are not at full employment at the moment, but probably not nearly as far away as the fact that we're still missing 4 million jobs would suggest. We're probably quite a bit closer than those numbers would indicate. But even if we're expecting some stickiness in upward wage pressures, Hatsius doesn't see much evidence at this point of inflation expectations becoming de-anchored or of the inflationary spiral that worries Alarian and argues that at least some changes in people's behavior that generate inflation in the economy are actually desirable. If we take a step back, really, it just comes down to whether or not these pressures are going to influence or are influencing inflation expectations. So what are you watching in terms of inflation expectations? And is there any reason to be concerned about a higher drift or even the scenario where they become de-anchored? I think the things I'm watching is kind of a broad range of forecaster expectations market expectations and consumer expectations. And the issue, I think, with inflation expectations is 
that what you really care about is the expectations of people making hiring and job search and pricing decisions in the real economy. The people that have well-formed expectations are forecasters and bond traders, but they don't really make those kinds of decisions. That's one reason why no inflation expectations measure is perfect. And I would say, take a broad look at all three of these different types of measures. I also am a fan of focusing on forward expectations. I don't really care that much about short-term inflation expectations because they tend to be very influenced by recent headline inflation and to a large extent what happened to oil prices and gasoline prices. So they don't typically have a huge amount of new information about the things that you really care about, which is the extent to which behavior is going to be affected by shifts in expectations. If I look at forward expectations, you know, five-year, five-year forward or whatever forward measure you can construct and want to look at, in general, I'm still pretty reassured, you know, up to now, so far so good, we have not really seen an increase in forward inflation expectations to levels that would be at all uncomfortable from the Fed's perspective. I mean, they're still very consistent with 2%, and these things could change. And if they changed, it would be a significant development, but I think so far, so good. Some observers argue that market expectations just don't send a very clear signal right now just because of the outsized presence of the Fed in fixed income markets. So is that a signal we should be looking at at all? They don't buy nominal bonds and tips to achieve a particular level for break-even inflation rates. And also, they're one participant in the bond market. If market participants had a strong view that inflation really is going to be significantly higher than whatever the break-even rate suggests, then there would be a large profit opportunity to invest on that basis and basically take the other side of the Fed. So, I mean, I'm certainly not saying that market inflation expectations and break-even inflation rates are perfect by any means. I mean, they have the issues, you know, risk premia and liquidity premia influence them. And again, the deeper issue is that they don't measure the inflation expectations of the people that actually make the pricing and wage setting decisions. But I would still use them as one high-frequency real-time input that deserves some weight. This idea of influencing behaviors of people who are making these decisions, well, we're already changing behavior. We're already seeing changes in behavior that then could prove persistent. So aren't we already seeing signs that this is getting more embedded? We are seeing some changes in behavior. To some degree, the Fed wants some changes in behavior. The ECB wants some changes in behavior because they felt that inflation was somewhat too low going into this. So directionally, that's quite desired. Now, are we seeing changes in behavior that are larger and going to be more persistent than what's needed to achieve half a percentage point more inflation in the next 10 years than in the last 20 years, it's possible because, again, some of the wage numbers, I think, bear close watching. But 
Otherwise, in the expectations numbers, I don't see that. In the wage numbers, I don't really see that if I look at the year-to-year numbers. If I focus on some of the higher frequency numbers, yeah, it's something where there's some risk, I think. And so we need to continue to watch that closely. But there's also a lot going on in the economy. It's still an economy that is emerging from an incredibly unusual period. I think you have to be a little bit careful not to put too much weight on especially high-frequency observations of wage changes, because it may just be that we're going through a sufficiently weird period that it just doesn't mean that much for where we're going to be a year from now. All that said, Hatzius expects the Fed to gradually continue to tighten policy, which he views as a reasonable course of action for now. Given what you expect in terms of inflation and, of course, growth, you know, where do you see the Fed and where are the risks around that, especially if inflation ends up you know, looking more persistent than we expected? I mean, it depends on the degree. So our baseline forecast is that taper runs through the middle of June and then relatively shortly thereafter, maybe July, they decide to lift the funds rate. So tapering morphs into tightening pretty seamlessly, but it's a gradual tightening where you basically get a hike about every six months. And that, of course, is very much predicated on the view that the inflation overshoot still turns out to be mostly transitory. And we get back to the neighborhood of 2%, two and a quarter percent or so over the next few years. That is our forecast. If it ended up being Two and a half percent. Yeah, maybe that's still the right ballpark. If it ended up being two and three quarters, that already would probably put the Fed on a faster tightening cycle. And you can't rule out something in the two and three quarter range. I think three percent, quite a bit less likely in my view. I mean, I don't think a three handle is at all likely, but that would require and probably prompt a significantly more aggressive monetary policy response with quarterly hikes or maybe more, it's conceivable. And so it would change the outlook quite a bit. I don't know that any of those outcomes would necessarily make them taper faster and hike before June. June is possible. I mean, even under the current tapering, I mean, it's possible that they taper until the middle of June, then there's a meeting around then, and then they hike the funds rate. Seems a little rushed, but possible. Anything earlier than that, I think it's very unlikely. Some observers argue that the Fed's current accommodative stance is just no longer appropriate. We are not in the middle of a pandemic crisis anymore. We've had this big rebound and really concerned that waiting as long as they have, even the window may have already passed, but and into 2022 and beyond, you know, it's just going to force them to act more aggressively next year. And it's going to push growth lower than it otherwise would have been and could even end up pushing us into recession. What's your response to that? My main response would be that they are moving, right? I mean, they have moved in terms of ending QE. There's now a schedule for that. The schedule is somewhat faster than most people expected. As Bear Paul said in the recent press conference, they did move it forward. They're tapering twice as fast as they did in 2013. And I think they've evolved the communication around full employment, for example. The discussion of labor force participation in the press conference was definitely different from the way that they've talked about it in the past. So 
yeah, could they go more aggressively? For sure. I don't know if that would necessarily be appropriate. I do think we're still not at full employment, even though we have more labor scarcity than you'd normally expect at this employment to population ratio. So there is a reasonable amount of uncertainty. I think what they're doing is reasonable. I'm glad that we're now on a path towards being able to consider some rate normalization. And obviously, the economy could look quite different in the middle of next year. So we'll see whether it's necessary. We'll see whether maybe they want to wait longer. Maybe they want to go somewhat faster by the time that they get to the end of the taper. But I think having another six, seven, eight months to consider whether a hike is needed at that point, I think that's a reasonable path. Because unlike central banks that have already started hiking rates, and obviously in DM we've only had a couple of small ones, but a lot of EM central banks have hiked aggressively, when the Fed moves, it's a more momentous step for the global financial cycle and the global economy, and it needs to be well considered. So what does this all mean for markets? Despite being more concerned about inflation and the Fed's response to it, El Arian thinks equity markets will continue to grind higher as long as the Fed's liquidity wave continues. As we sit here and digest all of these policy decisions, equities have been obviously hitting new highs, especially in the U.S. So in the context of everything we've just discussed, where do you think that's headed? What's happening in the equity market was captured perfectly a few months ago by Leon Kuperman when he was asked, how are you positioned? And he said, I am a fully invested bear. So in terms of fundamentals, he was bearish. He thought valuations are too high. But in terms of technicals, and particularly liquidity technicals, he was fully invested. It is this notion of a rational bubble. It is bubblish, there's no doubt about it, but it is rational. Why? Because investors are in a relative valuation paradigm. Where else do you go? Do you go to the fixed income market? Well, that is so distorted and is so one-sided in terms of risk return that it's not clear that that's where you want to go as a return engine and certainly not a diversifier because of what has been happening. Lots of investors cannot go into private credit, into venture, into private equity. Lots of investors are hesitant to go into crypto. So it leaves the equity market. It's this notion that we had at PIMCO of the cleanest dirty shirt. And the image we used to share is assume that you're on a business trip and you've packed just enough clothes for the length of your business trip. And then your business trip suddenly gets extended and you can't get to the laundry. You will wear your cleanest dirty shirt or blouse. right? And that's what investors are. Investors right now are seeing the equity market as the cleanest dirty shirt. And they feel they have no choice to wear it. That works really well as long as the paradigm is a relative valuation paradigm. And for a while, we will remain in this relative valuation paradigm. And I have been saying this over and over again, is you've got to respect the liquidity wave. The risk that we all want to avoid is an abrupt change from relative valuation to absolute valuation. Or to put it differently, that famous phrase, you stop worrying about the return on your capital and you start worrying about the return of your capital. And that's the paradigm shift that we're all trying to avoid. Because not only does it mean volatility, but most critically, it means you unduly undermine the real economy. We'll certainly continue to watch for continued signs of shifting inflation expectations and the inflation data itself to see how inflationary pressures continue to unfold.
I'll leave it there for now. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.